Chapter 32, Part 3 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of Title by Testament and Administration, Part 3. 3. The executor or administrator is to make an inventory of all the goods and chattels, whether in possession or action, of the deceased, which he is to deliver into the ordinary upon oath if thereunto lawfully required. 4. He is to collect all the goods and chattels so inventoried, and to that end has very large powers and interests conferred upon him by law, being the representative of the deceased and having the same property in his goods as the principal had when living, and the same remedies to recover them. And, if there be two or more executors, a sale or release by one of them shall be good against all the rest, but in case of administrators it is otherwise. Whatever is so recovered, that is of a saleable nature and may be converted into ready money, is called assets in the hands of the executor or administrator, that is, sufficient or enough from the French, a say, to make him chargeable to a creditor or legatee, so far as such goods and chattels extend. Whatever assets so come to his hands, he may convert into ready money, to answer the demands that may be made upon him, which are the next thing to be considered. Or, 5. The executor or administrator must pay the debts of the deceased. In payment of debts, he must observe the rules of priority. Otherwise, on deficiency of assets, if he pays those of a lower degree first, he must answer those of a higher out of his own estate. And first, he may pay all funeral charges and the expense of proving the will and the like. Secondly, debts due to the king on record or specialty. Thirdly, such debts as are by particular statutes to be preferred to all others, as forfeitures for not burying in woolen, money due on poor rates, or letters to the post office, and some others. Fourthly, debts of record, as judgments docketed according to the statute 4 and 5 William and Mary C. 20, statutes and recognizances. Fifthly, debts due on special contracts, as for rent, for which the lessor has often a better remedy in his own hands by distraining, or upon bonds, covenants, and the like, under seal. Lastly, debts on simple contracts, viz., upon notes unsealed and verbal promises. Among these simple contracts, servants' wages are by some with reason preferred to any other, and so stood the ancient law according to Bracton and Fleta who reckon, among the first debts to be paid, servitia servientum et stipendia famalorum. Among debts of equal degree, the executor or administrator is allowed to pay himself first, by retaining in his hands so much as his debt amounts to. But an executor of his own wrong is not allowed to retain, for that would tend to encourage creditors to strive who should first take possession of the goods of the deceased, 
and would besides be taking advantage of their own wrong, which is contrary to the rule of law. If a creditor constitutes his debtor his executor, this is a release or discharge of the debt, whether the executor acts or no, provided there be assets sufficient to pay the testator's debts. For, though this discharge of the debt shall take place of all legacies, yet it were unfair to defraud the testator's creditors of their just debts by a release which is absolutely voluntary. Also, if no suit is commenced against him, the executor may pay any one creditor in equal degree his whole debt, though he has nothing left for the rest. For, without a suit commenced, the executor has no legal notice of the debt. 6. When the debts are all discharged, the legacies claim the next regard, which are to be paid by the executor so far as his assets will extend but he may not give himself the preference herein, as in the case of debts. A legacy is a bequest or gift of goods and chattels by testament, and the person to whom it is given is styled the legatee, which every person is capable of being unless particularly disabled by the common law or statutes as traitors, papists, and some others. This bequest transfers an incohate property to the legatee, but the legacy is not perfect without the assent of the executor. For if I have a general or pecuniary legacy of a hundred pounds, or a specific one of a piece of plate, I cannot, in either case, take it without the consent of the executor. For in him all chattels are vested, and it is his business, first of all, to see whether there is a sufficient fund left to pay the debts of the testator, the rule of equity being that a man must be just before he is permitted to be generous, or, as Bracton expresses the sense of our ancient law, de bonus defuncte primo deducenda sent aequae sunt necessitatis, et poste aequae sunt utilitatis, et ultimo quae sunt voluntatis. And in case of a deficiency of assets, all the general legacies must abate proportionally in order to pay the debts. But a specific legacy of a piece of plate, a horse, or the like, is not to abate at all or allow anything by way of abatement unless there be not sufficient without it. Upon the same principle, if the legatees have been paid their legacies, they are afterwards bound to refund a rateable part in case debts come in more than sufficient to exhaust the residuum after the legacies paid. And this law is as old as Bracton and Fleta, who tell us, Si plura sunt debita, vel plaza legatum fueret, ad quae catala defuncti non sufficient, fiat ubique del facatio, Excepto regis privilegio. If the legatee dies before the testator, the legacy is a lost or lapsed legacy, and shall sink into the residuum. And if a contingent legacy be left to anyone, as, when he attains, or if he attains, the age of twenty-one, and he dies before that time, it is a lapsed legacy. But a legacy to one to be paid when he attains the age of 21 years is a vested legacy, 
an interest which commences in presente, although it be solvendum in futuro, and, if the legatee dies before that age, his representatives shall receive it out of the testator's personal estate, at the same time that it would have become payable in case the legatee had lived. This distinction is borrowed from the civil law, and its adoption in our courts is not so much owing to its intrinsic equity as to its having been before adopted by the ecclesiastical courts. 4. Since the Chancery has a concurrent jurisdiction with them, in regard to the recovery of legacies, it was reasonable that there should be a conformity in their determinations, and that the subject should have the same measure of justice in whatever court he sued. But if such legacies be charged upon a real estate, in both cases they shall lapse for the benefit of the heir. For, with regard to devises affecting lands, the ecclesiastical court hath no concurrent jurisdiction. And, in case of a vested legacy due immediately, and charged on land or money in the funds which yield immediate profit, interest shall be payable thereon from the testator's death. But if charged only on the personal estate, which cannot be immediately got in, it shall carry interest only from the end of the year after the death of the testator. Besides these formal legacies contained in a man's will and testament, there is also permitted another deathbed disposition of property, which is called a donation causa mortis. And, that is, when a person in his last sickness, apprehending his dissolution near, delivers or causes to be delivered to another the possession of any personal goods, under which have been included bonds and bills drawn by the deceased upon his banker to keep in case of his decease. This gift, if the donor dies, needs not the assent of his executor. Yet, it shall not prevail against creditors, and is accompanied with this implied trust, that if the donor lives, the property thereof shall revert to himself, being only given in contemplation of death, or mortis causa. This method of donation might have subsisted in a state of nature, being always accompanied with delivery of actual possession, and so far differs from a testamentary disposition, but seems to have been handed to us from the civil lawyers, who themselves borrowed it from the Greeks. 7. When all the debts and particular legacies are discharged, the surplus or residuum must be paid to the residuary legatee, if any be appointed by the will, and, if there be none, it was a long-settled notion that it devolved to the executor's own use by virtue of his executorship. But whatever ground there might have been formally for this opinion, it seems now to be understood with this restriction, that although where the executor has no legacy at all, the residuum shall in general be his own, yet, wherever there is sufficient on the face of a will, by means of a competent legacy or otherwise, to imply that the testator intended his executor should not have the residue, the undivised surplus of the estate 
shall go to the next akin, the executor then standing upon exactly the same footing as an administrator, concerning whom, indeed, there was formerly much debate whether or no he could be compelled to make any distribution of the intestate's estate. For though after the administration was taken in effect from the ordinary and transferred to the relations of the deceased, the spiritual court endeavored to compel a distribution and took bonds of the administrator for that purpose, they were prohibited by the temporal courts, and the bonds declared void at law. And the right of the husband not only to administer, but also to enjoy exclusively the effects of his deceased wife depends still on this doctrine of the common law. The statute, 29 Charles II, declaring only that the statute of distributions does not extend to this case. But now these controversies are quite at an end. For, by the statute 22-23 Charles II C-10, it is enacted that the surplusage of intestate's estates except of femmes covert, shall, after the expiration of one full year from the death of the intestate, be distributed in the following manner. One-third shall go to the widow of the intestate, and the residue in equal proportions to his children, or, if dead, to their representatives, that is, their lineal descendants. If there are no children or legal representatives subsisting, then a moiety shall go to the widow, and a moiety to the next of kindred in equal degree and their representatives. If no widow, the whole shall go to the children. If neither widow nor children, the whole shall be distributed among the next of kin in equal degree and their representatives. But no representatives are admitted among collaterals farther than the children of the intestate's brothers and sisters. The next of kindred here referred to are to be investigated by the same rules of consanguinity as those who are entitled to letters of administration, of whom we have sufficiently spoken. And therefore, by this statute, the mother, as well as the father, succeeded to all the personal effects of their children who died intestate and without wife or issue, in exclusion of the other sons and daughters, the brothers and sisters of the deceased. And so the law still remains with respect to the father, but by the statute 1, Jacobin 2, C17, if the father be dead and any of the children die intestate without wife or issue in the lifetime of the mother, she and each of the remaining children or their representatives shall divide his effects in equal portions. It is obvious to observe how near a resemblance this statute of distributions bears to our ancient English law, de rationabili parte bonorum, spoken of at the beginning of this chapter, and which Sir Edward Coke himself though he doubted the generality of its restraint on the power of devising by will, held to be universally binding upon the administrator or executor in the case of either total or partial intestacy. It also bears some resemblance to the Roman law of successions ab intestato, which, 
and because the act was also penned by an eminent civilian, has occasioned the notion that the Parliament of England copied it from the Roman Praetor. Though indeed, it is little more than a restoration, with some refinements and regulations, of our old constitutional law, which prevailed as an established right and custom from the time of King Canute downwards many centuries before Justinian's laws were known or heard of in the western parts of Europe. So likewise, there is another part of the statute of distributions where directions are given that no child of the intestate, except his heir at law, on whom he settled in his lifetime any estate in lands or pecuniary portion, equal to the distributive shares of the other children, shall have any part of the surplusage with their brothers and sisters. But if the estates so given them by way of advancement are not quite equivalent to the other shares, the children so advanced shall now have so much as will make them equal. This just and equitable provision hath been also said to be derived from the collatio bonorum, of the imperial law, which it certainly resembles in some points, though it differs wildly in others. But it may not be amiss to observe that, with regard to goods and chattels, this is part of the ancient custom of London, of the province of York, and of our sister kingdom of Scotland. And, with regard to lands descending in co-parsonary, that it hath always been, and still is, the common law of England, under the name of Hotchpot. Before I quit this subject, I must, however, acknowledge that the doctrine and limits of representation laid down in the statute of distributions seem to have been principally borrowed from the civil law, whereby it will sometimes happen that personal estates are divided per capita and sometimes per stirpes, whereas the common law knows no other rule of succession but that per stirpes only. They are divided per capita to every man an equal share when all the claimants claim in their own rights as an equal degree of kindred and not jure representationis in the right of another person. As if the next of kin be the intestate's three brothers, A, B, and C. Here his estate is divided into three equal portions and distributed per capita, one to each. But if one of these brothers, A, had been dead, leaving three children, and another, B, leaving two, then the distribution must have been per stirpes, viz. one-third to A's three children, another third to B's two children, and the remaining third to C, the surviving brother. Yet, if C had also been dead, without issue, then A's and B's five children, being all in equal degree to the intestate, would take in their own rights per capita, viz. each of them one-fifth part. The statute of distributions expressly accepts and reserves the customs of the City of London, of the Province of York, and of all other places having peculiar customs of distributing intestates' effects. So that, though in those places the restraint of devising is removed by the statutes formerly mentioned, their ancient customs remain in full force with respect 
to the estates of intestates. I shall therefore conclude this chapter, and with it the present book, with a few remarks on those customs. In the first place, we may observe that in the city of London and the province of York, as well as in the kingdom of Scotland, and therefore probably also in Wales, concerning which there is little to be gathered but from the statute 7 and 8, William III, C38, the effects of the intestate after payment of his debts are in general divided according to the ancient universal doctrine of the pars rationabilis. If the deceased leaves a widow and children, his substance deducting the widow's apparel and furniture of her bedchamber, which in London is called the widow's chamber, is divided into three parts, one of which belongs to the widow, another to the children, and the third to the administrator. If only a widow or only children, they shall respectively, in either case, take one moiety and the administrator the other. If neither widow nor child, the administrator shall have the whole. And this portion, or dead man's part, the administrator was wont to apply to his own use till the statute 1 Jacobin 2 C17 declared that the same should be subject to the statutes of distribution, so that if a man dies worth £1,800, leaving a widow and two children, the estate shall be divided into 18 parts, whereof the widow shall have eight, six by the custom, and two by the statute, and each of the children five, three by the custom, and two by the statute. If he leaves a widow and one child, they shall each have a moiety of the whole, or nine such eighteenth parts, six by the custom, and three by the statute. If he leaves a widow and no child, the widow shall have three-fourths of the whole, two by the custom, and one by the statute and the remaining fourth shall go by the statute to the next of kin. It is also to be observed that if the wife be provided for by a jointure before marriage, in bar of her customary part, it puts her in a state of non-entity with regard to the custom only, but she shall be entitled to her share of the dead man's part under the statute of distributions, unless barred, by special agreement. And if any of the children are advanced by the father in his lifetime with any sum of money not amounting to their full portionable part, they shall bring that portion into the hotchpot with the rest of the brothers and sisters, but not with the widow, before they are entitled to any benefit under the custom. But if they are fully advanced, the custom entitles them to no farther dividend. Thus far, in the main, the customs of London and of York agree, but, besides certain other less material variations, there are two principal points in which they considerably differ. One is, that in London, the share of the children, or orphanage part, is not fully vested in them till the age of twenty-one, before which, they cannot dispose of it by testament, and, if they die under that age, 
whether soul or married, their share shall survive to the other children. But after the age of 21, it is free from any orphanage custom and, in case of intestacy, shall fall under the statute of distributions. The other, that in the province of York, the heir at common law, who inherits any lands either in fee or in tail, is excluded from any filial portion or reasonable part. But, notwithstanding these provincial variations, the customs appear to be substantially one and the same. And, as a similar policy formerly prevailed in every part of the island, we may fairly conclude the whole to be of British original, or, if derived from the Roman law of successions, to have been drawn from that fountain much earlier than the time of Justinian, from whose constitutions in many points, particularly in the advantages given to the widow, it very considerably differs. Though, it is not improbable that the resemblances which yet remain may be owing to the Roman usages, introduced in the time of Claudius Caesar, who established a colony in Britain to instruct the natives in legal knowledge, inculcated and diffused by Papinian, who presided at York as Praefectus Praetorio under the emperors Severus and Caracalla, and continued by his successors till the final departure of the Romans in the beginning of the 5th century after Christ. End of chapter 32, part 3. End of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, book the second of the Rights of Things by William Blackstone.